this, this slide, I, I saw this a graphic this week, and uh, Deborah worked with me to, to adjust it so that we could use it here. But if you can see the tomb, the open tomb at the very top and the, the crown of thorns at the bottom, I just thought, oh, how appropriate to continue on in this theme of the message of the gospel has everything to do with the cross of Jesus Christ, his death in our place, but not just his death, but his resurrection to eternal life. And so uh, as we look at this passage this morning, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And as we do that, we're going to see how the message of the gospel, as much as it's called good news, sometimes it upsets people. We've seen it already a few times in the book of Acts, but we're going to see it again uh, today in our passage in, in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read the, the verses because there's just nine of them together. But if you would open up a Bible, there's a Bible there near you in the pew or in the seat um, and follow along. It will be um, awesome. All right. So there's a couple tricky names in here. And because of my slight dyslexia, I will probably pronounce them incorrectly. But you can uh, enjoy that. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, um, they came to Thessalonica. I can say that one. Uh, where, they were, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise again from the dead. There's the cross, the suffering, and there's the resurrection. It's the message. Continuing on, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But, verse 5 says, the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them, them mean Paul and Silas, to bring them out to, public, to the public assembly. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. A security bond. It's like a fine. You know, it's like bail. Uh, and they released them. All right. So we are going to look at a map here. This is the map that uh, helps us to orient ourselves. Where is Thessalonica? So Paul and Silas set out from Antioch, which is way over this side, and now are way up in the corner there. They've come out of Philippi, and they're now in Thessalonica. Um, I wanted you to see that because they're on this journey. This is, this is going to be something that they repeat again, or at least Paul repeats again. And um, we, we need to see how the gospel is continuing to move. It's not staying in one place. This is one of our problems as humans. Sometimes we like where we are and we're comfortable where we are and we stop moving even though God desires for us to keep moving and to keep sharing and to keep bringing Jesus to other people. 
So as usual in our passage this morning, we see that Paul and Silas, they went into the synagogue because when there was a synagogue, they would go there first. Last week, there was not a synagogue, so they went to the, pa- the place of prayer where they met Lydia and some others. But here there was a synagogue in Thessalonica. And for three Sabbaths, which means at least three weeks, three weekends, because the Sabbath is once a week. So for almost a month, it says they reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Because there was confusion, and there still is confusion over this, the role that Jesus took as the suffering servant to come and die for us. Because the prophets had talked about him coming triumphantly as a king, which we are still waiting for, in the clouds with his armies and setting up a a kingdom for God here on earth. But that is after he comes to redeem the world, to bring us to himself through his shed blood and through the salvation that he offers us through the forgiveness of our sins. And so there was a little bit of confusion over the timing of that. And so how could this be the Messiah if he suffered and died like a criminal on a cross? That was a disgraceful way to die. And so many, many Jews could not accept that as the truth. And still to this day, many do not. But, Jesus came, but, but Paul came here with this message, a very clear message about the cross and the resurrection. And to tell them that this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, is the one you've been waiting for. That is the message of the gospel. Some of the people were persuaded, some of the Jews, in that synagogue, and they joined Paul and Silas. What that means is they they came to faith. They they became believers. This is where we find Jason and the the crew that, that we talk about later in the verses. Also, there was a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. Now, Luke is very good at giving credit to the women, right? We've seen in in his resurrection story, it was the women who who came to the tomb. It was the women who saw Jesus first. It was the women who were commissioned to go and tell the disciples that Jesus was alive and to go to Galilee and to meet him there. He just told us about Lydia. Lydia this powerful businesswoman back in the city just before this, you know, where where he was able to help us to see that the gospel is clearly including both genders. There is not a gender difference here, right? There is men and women who come to Jesus Christ on equal ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Lydia and Mary and the women at the resurrection, as well as some of the leading women here in this place, are busy about the kingdom work, just as we saw our sister Annette, who just got back from Africa. Welcome back. I think you were here last week, and I was not. But she's going to tell us in a few weeks about her trip to Malawi to bring the gospel to the people there. So there are leading women who have come to faith, and God is using them to continue to to expand the kingdom of God here on earth. So people coming to faith in Jesus, souls being saved. This is a good moment here in these initial verses. A large number of people had come to faith through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there should be a celebration. But instead of a celebration, we get another riot. 
We get a city in an uproar and people, you know, beating people and, and going crazy and yelling. And, you know, it, it, it's not what you would expect, except as Christians, it is what you should expect. When we share the gospel, we want it to be like a fairy tale that ends happily ever after here on earth. We do get a happily ever after, but not here on earth. On earth, Jesus promised us trouble. He said, you know what? They're going to treat you like they treated me. I had to suffer, and you also will suffer for this message, for this kingdom. We don't like that part of the gospel, but it's the gospel. It's the truth. It's not a disnified version of the gospel. It is the gospel truth as according to God's word. So we ought to be getting used to these riots by now. It seems to be the pattern in which the gospel is actually spread. When the gospel is being spread, adversity follows. There's this pushback because there are two kingdoms at war, right? There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. And when the kingdom of God advances, what's it advancing against? The kingdom of this world. And so there is a conflict we always want everything to be so easy. I do too. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I like things to be easy too. I like things smooth and easy and everybody getting along. But if you look at Jesus and the gospel in the early church, not everybody's getting along. There is conflict. When the gospel is brought about, it brings about a stirring. It turns everything upside down. So I want to read you the words of Jesus. They're on page 960. If you want to turn there real quick, it's not very far away. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Just a few of his words to to let his words like ring into this scene here with us. John chapter 16, verse 27. It says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been brought into the world. Jesus goes on and says, So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will ever be able to take away your joy. Down to verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. And because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God, I came from the Father and I have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and you don't need anyone to question you. By this We believe that you have come from God. So this is the moment where the the lights have all come on and they finally begin to believe that he is God, that he is the Messiah come from God. So Jesus responded to them. Do you now believe? Because indeed an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I will not be alone because the Father is with me. Verse 33. 
I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Next verse, next line is important. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So when we have suffering, Jesus isn't losing. When the church suffers, Jesus isn't losing. He has already conquered. He has already been victorious over all things. So we're, we, we, we need this perspective to be in our minds as we look at scenarios like this in the Bible, but also as we look at scenarios in our own real world today and as we look at personal things that we're going through. Be courageous. Jesus has overcome the world. Whatever the world can kind of bring against you, Jesus has already had victory in that area. So we are to hold firm in our faith. Last week when Pastor Gary was preaching on on Acts 16 and how Paul and Silas were attacked and beaten with rods and then thrown into prison, the deepest, darkest part of the prison. Now this week, just a few weeks later, we're caught up in another riot in the city of Thessalonica. Everywhere they go, there's problems. Do you ever feel like that in your life? Every turn you take, there's another problem. There's another situation. Doesn't mean that God is mad at you. You may be doing all the right things, but there's still problems because you're in this world. And in this world, Jesus just told us in the Gospel of John, you will have suffering, but be courageous. Hold on. Don't give up. He has overcome. See, the Jews were jealous. They were jealous because people were responding to this message of the Messiah. They thought it was the wrong message anyway, so they were upset at Paul and Silas and the Christians. So they brought together these wicked men, it says, from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot. They attacked Jason's house because they were searching for Paul and Silas, and they knew that Paul and Silas had been there in Jason's house. But they couldn't find them. So they just grabbed Jason and whoever else was there and dragged them before the city officials. Now, poor Jason and his friends... They did nothing wrong except respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now they're being dragged out into guilty by association, right? They had associated with Paul and Silas, and now they were guilty as well of whatever Paul and Silas were being accused of. I wonder sometimes, were they guilty by association with Paul and Silas, or were they guilty by association with Jesus? Had they proclaimed their faith enough among their friends and family that people knew, oh, those are Jesus people. Those are Jesus people. And they're guilty by association with Jesus. I always turn questions on myself, and I want to be guilty by association with Jesus. Am I? Am I guilty by that association? Do people associate me with Jesus? Not that I am him, but that I am his follower, that I am his friend. See, one of the converts that we meet here is named. He's actually named Jason, right? We get to have his name. It says Jason and some other Christian brothers. And the charge that's brought against him was that he was an upsetter. That's the word. You know, we can look at this word. He was an upsetter. This group of people, they were upsetting people. Now, they were upsetting the city, Now, because there was a a riot going on. But who started the riot? Do you remember? 
It wasn't Jason and these brothers. It was the people who were upset with them. So they were upset, so they went and upset some other people. It was contagious, this upsetting. And they were doing this by associating with Jesus and the people of Jesus. Now, some of you have been an upsetter in your own family or in your marriage or in your friendships. When you came to Jesus, you thought it was a good thing. You thought it was good news. And as you begin to share it with those around you who maybe didn't know Jesus, they got upset with you. Why do you have to change? Why don't you go with the places we used to go? Why don't you do the things you used to do? What's wrong with you? Right? So it can be a personal upsetter. You can be a personal upsetter or you can be an upsetter of a whole city, which is what's happening in our passage here. See, they were upsetting people, number one, because they now associating their life. They were trying to become faithful followers of Jesus. And so that brought some change, which we'll talk about in a moment. But also there's this accusation that they were claiming another king. They were following someone other than Caesar. Caesar was emperor, king, and now Jesus was being called king. And maybe in some of their songs, they were praising him and saying, King Jesus, we love you, King Jesus. We submit to you, King Jesus. They were recognizing that Jesus was the ultimate king, the king of kings. And this was one of the accusations. You see, the problem here in this, in this particular city, Thessalonica, is that it was considered a free city, but it wasn't actually free. It was under Roman rule. And if they behaved themselves, they would remain free or autonomous in some ways. But if there was anything that upset the Romans, the Romans would come in with an iron fist and take over. This was a problem back in Jerusalem as well. And we see all that dynamic around Jesus and his arrest and Pilate and, and Herod and all of that. It was like they were given certain permission to, to function and to, to be the city or to be the group of people that they, were, that they had been traditionally. But Rome had come in and said, but ultimately, we're in charge. Ultimately, we're the boss over you, right? If you behave yourselves, you'll have a certain amount of freedom. If you misbehave, you will lose that freedom. This is why this was a problem in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city of about 50,000 people. This is not a small village of six or 700. This is 50,000 people who live here in this free city. And they depend on Rome for that freedom. They depend on Rome for everything. The relationship between them and Rome was now being threatened. Now... They were unable to find Paul and Silas and the others who were traveling with them. We don't know where they went. Luke doesn't actually tell us. Did God, like, allow them to just vanish, you know, end up somewhere else? Did they find an escape route? Were they hidden until nightfall and then they left the city? We don't actually know. But because they couldn't find someone to pin this on, they find Jason and Jason's friends. And they make him responsible for what those missionaries had done by upsetting their city. They also made him responsible financially for any future actions if those missionaries came back. If they came back again, we know where to find you. 
And, and we have this bond. We have this, this, this money that you have had to pay us because of all that has been upset in our city. So since most of us had never been caught up in the middle of a, a riot or a mob scene, most of us, maybe some of you have, let's just stop and think about how frightening this must have been for Jason and those early believers. These are new converts. They weren't part of the team. The team had already moved on. Paul and Silas and whoever else traveled with them. Luke is one of those people. They had moved on. So now, these people who couldn't be more than a few weeks in the Lord are being arrested and threatened and fined. This is a big deal for a new believer. You know, this is a... I could see them saying, this is not what I signed up for. (laughs) I thought it was going to be joy and happiness forevermore. You know, what's happening here, God? This is why Paul writes them soon afterwards, the book of Thessalonians, chapter one. I mean, book one and book two comes later. But Paul writes to encourage them because it must have been scary. It must have been a scary thing. What, What have we done wrong? And now what do we do? So I want you to understand something. This dynamic, this thing that's happening here in Acts chapter 17 has been happening ever since. It has never stopped happening on the earth. Somewhere in some city or some town or some people group, this same thing is taking place. Why do I say that? Because the gospel is a radical message, and it turns things upside down. I read recently in in the New York Times a whole article, an investigative article that they did about the arrests and the beatings and the secret prayers inside the persecution of the Indian Christian church. I'm going to read you a little bit of that article Because I want you to understand the gospel is still upsetting people. It's upsetting people. It's upsetting governments. It's upsetting groups of people who stand against it and opposed to it. But the gospel continues to prevail. The gospel continues to move forward. More and more people keep coming to Christ. Because God is in charge. God is the power behind the gospel. So here's a a couple of things that I gleaned from this article in the New York Times. The article reported that in tradition-bound, get that word, tradition-bound rural areas where Christians are a tiny minority and community means everything, the pressure on Christians is intense. The village elders, or those in charge, in, in our passage, they were called the council, right? Oh, the city officials. But in this article... From just this past fall, the village elders instituted the equivalent of a $130 fine for any family that allowed a Christian to enter their home. This is today. This is last fall. I don't think it's changed since last fall. So this is now on the earth today. If you're in one of these areas of India and you invite a Christian into your home and they find out, like Jason, they find out that you had that Christian in your home. They fine you $130. Now, that might not seem like a lot to some of you rich Americans, but it's a lot in India. It's like $10,000. 
It's a huge fine. At the same time, they are trying to force the few Christian families in their communities to convert to Hinduism so they can preserve the community is their desire. Warning that otherwise, no one will marry your children, no one will attend your funerals, and you will not be allowed to sell anything in our marketplace. Today, in India, we're not reading from 2,000-year-old scriptures anymore. We're reading from today. Many places have instituted what's called the anti-conversion laws. Have you heard of these? The anti-conversion laws carry a prison sentence of up to 10 years for any person who is found guilty of sharing Jesus and converting someone to Christ. That's the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do, is to bring Jesus to those who don't know him. And in certain areas of India, you will go to prison for that if someone responds positively to the gospel message. So energized by this anti-Christian atmosphere that's being built in, in India, scores of young people, young Hindu nationalists, they call them, are storming churches. They use a WhatsApp app to plan raids when churches are in session, when they have their services, like right now. You could be sitting in India, listening to the pastor or singing some songs, and hundreds of angry rioters barge through the doors and start beating you. This group is made up of more than 5,000 members who have recently conducted several anti-Christian marches through their cities, through their towns, during which they belt out this phrase, which sounds a little funny to us, but they say, converters, let's beat them with shoes. All right? That's a huge insult and a huge problem for that culture. And they call them converters. Now, I would be proud to be called a converter. If I were going and sharing Christ with people and they were converting and coming to Christ... Hallelujah. That's what I'm here for. That's what we're here for as a church. But these brothers and sisters in India, there's marches against them. And they're, actually in September, it says they actually took, they barged into a church. They took the pastors down into the police station. They hurled their shoes at the two pastors and beat them up right in front of the police officers who did nothing about it. Because these people... These pastors, these Christians are upsetters. They're upsetting the norm. Have you ever been an upsetter? I think the day is coming when we will be upsetters. If it isn't here already, I believe it's coming. Verse 6 in our passage says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying that there's another king. Jesus. Jesus, our king. You see, knowing that the religious differences among the Jews and the Gentiles maybe didn't matter so much to the city officials in Thessalonica, the adversaries of the gospel used politics good old politics, to their advantage, saying that they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. 
saying there's another king. Watch out for politics. Watch out. It gets used and abused and twisted and, and used in, in, a, in a way that it was not intended to be used to bring division, to bring defeat, to bring discouragement to the body of Christ and to the movement of God on the earth. So as I said before, this should remind us, this whole passage should remind us about the gospel account of Jesus and even Jesus' trial. Jesus came to be a suffering servant and he died for us. But he was accused by the Jews of blasphemy, of which Rome didn't care so much about the blasphemy stuff, right? But what they did care about was, is there another king? Do you remember on the, on the cross of Jesus, it says they, they nailed a, a sign above him? What did it say? King of the Jews, right? That was the reason behind Rome allowing for the crucifixion. That was the political reason. The religious reason was the blasphemy. He calls himself God. But the religious reason wasn't enough. They needed a political reason as well to use both systems of the world to bring about the crucifixion of our Savior. And Luke actually says in his gospel that they accused Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, which wasn't even true, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. That's from Luke chapter 23. So back to our passage, this has been happening ever since to God's people. If we move forward and share the gospel in a culture that's anti-God and anti-gospel, there will be conflict. Paul and Silas are nowhere to be found in this, so we can't blame them for this. This is the Christian community that's left in Thessalonica, the small group of believers, the young believers that were meeting at Jason's house. And like I said, this is the church that Paul has to write those letters to and encourage them. I'm going to hear a few words from the first book, the first letter to the Thessalonian church. I'll read you a couple verses here at the beginning, but, he, but Paul, he writes to them, to the church in, in, um, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of God the Father, your work, which has produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That he has chosen you. That's such encouraging words coming from the apostle to help them through their hard time. Go down to uh, verse 8. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and at Jai, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. And here's the key verse, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The gospel of Jesus turned their world upside down. But people who respond to the gospel willingly turn their world upside down. Before we were in darkness and in sin, and now we desire more light and more purity and more holiness each day. You see, there's two different words here, two different Greek words from two different Greek roots. One for turning. In other words, they turned the world upside down from our, our, our passage this morning, Acts 7, 17, verse 6. That turned the world upside down means to stir up or to unsettle or to excite. And that's what we see happening. That's why there's a riot, right? Because it was being turned upside down. This turning here in, in the book of Thessalonians is a different word. In English, it's not. But in, in Greek, in its, in its original language, it means to turn to, indicating an immediate and decisive turn as a part of a deliberate decision. See, one is just getting all shook up. And the other is saying, no, no, no. I want that life instead. I want to go in that direction. One of these things, the stirring up, the unsettling, can just happen to you. You can get excited. You can get upset. You can be unsettled because your values, your destructive habits are now being questioned by the holiness and the grace of God. But the other is a decision to turn around, to turn away from what the Bible calls darkness and to turn towards the light of Christ. So our passage in verse 4 tells us that some people turn their lives around, Jason and his buddies and some of the women in that community were converted and that's what conversion actually means. Conversion is the process of changing from one form to another. I once was dead in my sin, and now I'm alive in Christ forevermore. I was lost, but now I'm found and I'm following Christ. So that's what conversion means. You actually change. If you became a Christian and nothing about your life changed, you didn't become a Christian. I don't know what you are. But you're not a Christian if your life was not changed by Christ. If you didn't make the choice to begin a new life with him and to, to, to let him in and begin to reestablish his kingdom within you and then through you in this earth. In Christian theology, the individual's responsibility is to turn and believe. This is like a pivot of your life. Turning from self-control to Christ-control to spirit control, being controlled by the flesh or by the spirit, but not both, and definitely not the flesh. Paul talks about that again and again as he writes to the early church. He says, listen, don't live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. And that takes a turn, that takes a decision. The spirit-filled life must begin with a confrontation of the real self with the resurrected Christ. You've got to 
come to him with all your gunk and all your junk and say, here I am, help me. Lead me, guide me, cleanse me, fill me, teach me. If you don't make that turn, you haven't turned to Christ. You may have turned to religion. You may have turned to tradition. You may have turned to a group, a, a group of you know, moral decisions. But Christ is the one we encounter. There's a movie we're going to show here this Friday night at 6.30, if you can come. It's called The Most Reluctant Convert. And its, it's subtitle is From Hard-Boiled Atheist to the Most Reluctant Convert. It's the testimony of C.S. Lewis. Now, we know C.S. Lewis mostly in this day and age for his children's series, Narnia, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all, the, the whole series, right? But that's not what he's really known for. That was a children's series that he wrote. He has great, deep theological writing that helps us to understand the depths of God and his grace and his love. C.S. Lewis was not born like that. He was born a sinner like us. And somehow through God's grace and mercy was converted. Maybe he was upset for a while, but eventually he decided, I want Jesus I want to be in the will of God. I want to follow him all of my days. And our question should always be, have we turned and are we continuing to turn to Jesus? Are we moving our lives in that direction or are we being dragged off in another direction? Have we made Jesus king? King, which means master and boss and whatever else you want it to mean. It means he's in charge and you are not. And that's a hard turn. That's not an easy turn because the will and the self is relentless for wanting to be in charge. But God's love is greater. His grace is more relentless. He is after you, and he's after your heart, and he's after my heart every day. He never gives up. His mercies are new every morning to forgive us and to bring us closer to himself and to wash us clean and to set us in the right direction and to give us more of his spirit to guide us and help us. I love that Paul is in this story because one of the things that we know best about Paul is his conversion. His conversion story in Acts chapter 9. How he was on the road, you know, going to destroy that church, going to get those Christians and throw them in jail. And, da, 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 and then like, wham, God hits him and blinds him. Actually, for three days, he, he was physically blind. And Jesus simply says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Saul. Sorry, he was still Saul at the time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, who are you? I am Jesus. We all need that face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. If you haven't had it, ask him for it. Say, God, show yourself to me, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, so that I may be changed, that I may change my life and go in the direction that you intended it to go. Because you created me for a purpose. You created me to give glory to you, and all I do is mess up and give glory to nobody, right? 
want us to pray together that even if you understand perfectly what this means in your life today, that you then take it and you proclaim it, you teach it, you, you share it with others. But if there's any confusion in your mind, turn to Jesus. It is the answer to that confusion. His word, his spirit, his people can help guide you and bring you on the path that God has purposed you to be on. It's not impossible. You haven't sinned too much. You're not too far from him. He's right here with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we know that your desire is that none should perish but that all should come to salvation through Jesus Christ. We know that's not an easy process. It is like childbirth, painful and difficult, but in the end comes the new life. And so God, anyone that's struggling here this morning with making that decision to turn to you fully as their real self and ask you into their lives, Lord, I pray that you would make a way. You would break down the resistance, that you would remove the barriers, and that they would invite you in as you knock at that door of their hearts. And Lord, all of us who claim to follow you, if we are off, if we are a little bit off the path, bring us back. Shepherd us back into your perfect will so that we may live out your purposes all the days of our life. Thank you that when we were lost, sinners, not even looking for you, you died on the cross and forgave our sins. So we praise you for that this day. Amen. 